Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of the Better Health While Aging podcast. And today I'm going to do yet another thing I haven't done before. Uh, I am recording a little introduction for a uh, podcast interview that I recorded uh, a few weeks ago. It was actually slated to come out on March 12th last month, and I bumped it at the last moment because of the emerging coronavirus situation. So this is with my geriatrician colleague, Dr. Muriel Gillick. And at the time we recorded it about a month ago, we were not yet thinking about how much the coronavirus epidemic was going to change healthcare. But I still think it's great to share right now because we cover some really relevant information about understanding an older person's overall state of health as you think about goals of care and decisions if there is a health crisis or emergency. And with the coronavirus epidemic, uh, most people, even quite old people who get it, will just have a mild case, but some people will get very significantly ill. So I think this is a timely moment to share Dr. Gillick's insights on understanding an older person's underlying state of health, whether they're frail or not, and on how to think about uh, those goals of care and those decisions that can guide advanced planning and can provide guidance should there be a health emergency. So um, please enjoy uh, this episode. And then uh, Dr. Gillick has actually published a New York Times commentary just in the past week about coronavirus and also a post on her own blog related to coronavirus in critically ill older people. So I have added those links to the show notes as well. Take care, everybody, and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about what family caregivers should know about geriatrics and about assisting with the health care of an older parent or another older relative. My guest today is Dr. Muriel Gillick. She is a board-certified geriatrician and palliative care specialist and a professor at Harvard Medical School. She is also a writer. She has authored not only several scholarly journal articles, but several excellent books written for the general public related to aging and end-of-life issues. And she also publishes one of my favorite blogs about geriatrics and palliative care, which is called Life in the End Zone. And so I've, for a very long time, been an admirer of Dr. Gillick's practical, insightful takes on all kinds of topics related to geriatrics. So I was really thrilled to learn about her latest book, which has just been published this spring, which is called The Caregiver's Encyclopedia, A Compassionate Guide to Caring for Older Adults. So as regular listeners of this podcast know, I started Better Health While Aging several years ago because I thought it was really important that older adults and families learn more of what we know in geriatrics. Because after all, the most important members of the healthcare team are the patient and the family members. 
So I think Dr. Gillick's new book just falls right into that philosophy, and I'm so happy that she's able to join me today on the podcast to talk about her book and to share with us her key insights on what's especially valuable to know if you take on this role of helping your aging parent or another older person navigate health issues and other issues that come up in later life. So Muriel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Yes. So before we get started talking about your book and what you bring up in your book, I would love for us to start by having you tell us a little bit more about you and your professional work. So you are a geriatrician, but actually there are a lot of different ways both to practice and to do our work. Often when geriatricians are based at academic institutions, they do a lot of work that's not necessarily direct patient care. So tell us a little bit about the kind of work with patients that you do and in what context you've usually worked with older adults and their families. Over the course of my career, I've taken care of patients in a whole variety of settings. I started out working in a neighborhood health center. Uh, I spent a number of years in a practice that was based at a community teaching hospital. I spent a good chunk of time working in a long-term care facility. Uh, And then most recently, decided to branch out into palliative care, which isn't exclusively focused on older people, although a disproportionate number of my patients were, in fact, older adults. And in that capacity, I worked as part of a team. I, I ran the team uh, as part of a program in a multi-specialty group practice. And we saw patients at home, occasionally in the office, sometimes in the hospital, in all those those different sites. So it's based on many, many different kinds of clinical experiences that I've done my writing. And just to clarify for the audience, maybe you can just briefly summarize what is palliative care, because I think, you know, people are not always sure. And so it's, I find that it can be helpful to to summarize it for people. So I also didn't know what palliative care really was for a long time and was reluctant to engage in it because I thought it dealt exclusively with the very, very end of life. And I was interested more broadly in people in the last phase of life, life, however long that might be, which could be months or it could be years. For example, someone with dementia might have a, a disease that was going to progress over a period of several years. But then I realized that palliative care dealt with all these people and and was just an interdisciplinary approach to managing care in this sometimes fraught part of life, focusing on advanced care planning, focusing on symptom management, and addressing the psychosocial aspects of care for both the affected individual and the family member. Well, I'm so glad to hear you clarify that because first of all, I think you must hear this too, but I feel like people often equate palliative care with hospice, right? Which is a very specific, uh, both philosophy to the approach and set of Medicare benefits for people, you know, who are thought to be in the last six months of life and want to transition to a focus where the care is, you know, especially on on comfort and on making the most of the time that is left. 
And then uh, I love that you bring up also that, you know, when thinking about the end of life, it can be so useful to think beyond, you know, the very end, the last moments, the last days, to really thinking about the last phase, right? This last stage, which, as you said, you know, for some people can last for, uh, for years. And then I also like to bring up to people that, you know, uh, you don't have to be dying to get palliative care because it's fundamentally a specialty that focuses on addressing uh, dis distressing symptoms, right? Physical health symptoms and also emotional and social symptoms. And then as you point out in your book, I think palliative care clinicians are especially good at helping people understand the big picture of their health and think about what their goals should be, what they want out of medical care. And that is, of course, very useful to anyone who has a serious medical illness, whether or not we think they might be, you know, terminal or dying within the next six months to a year. Absolutely. When I trained in geriatrics, uh, we both did a few months of palliative care, but actually where I was at the San Francisco VA, at that time, it was geriatricians who provided the palliative care services. And so I used to attend on our palliative care service at the veterans hospital, both for consults and the inpatient unit. So I did some of it, but it's true that there is a distinction between geriatrics and palliative care, although also a certain amount of overlap. And then we're very fortunate to have some clinicians like yourself who've done you know, deep involved work in both specialties. And I think that makes you uniquely well-suited to have written this book. So now let's talk about your, your book. What led you to decide to write this particular book at this time? Well, it's always hard to know what really motivates people, but I think, <laughs> I, think um, I saw many patients get an, a medical care that wasn't really the approach that they wanted or the approach that they would have wanted if they'd understood more about what that approach meant. They got care that was too burdensome, too invasive, too disruptive, uh, or they wouldn't have wanted that kind of care had they realized that there was an alternative. Wait, are they, are they getting care that was not what maybe would have been recommended by a geriatrician? Sometimes, yeah. but certainly. <laughs> um, right. They, often patients may say that they want aggressive care when they're asked because they think that that's what would be best for them, but they, nobody really explores with them what, what is best, uh, what the pros and cons are of different approaches. So having seen that many older people ended up with a kind of care that I didn't really think is what was right for them, I asked myself, well, what might have led them down a different path? And one reason that they might have gotten the wrong kind of care for them was that they didn't have a geriatrician. <laughs> but the other reason was that they may not have involved a caregiver in either the decision-making or the management of their problems. And yes, sometimes they didn't involve a caregiver because they didn't want to involve a caregiver, but I thought more often than not, the caregiver was excluded, was not involved. Doctors were very good at asking healthcare proxies in the hospital at the time of imminent disaster 
do you think your relative who is now incapable of speaking for herself or himself would want to be intubated? That's the kind of situation where we involve caregivers and surely should, but it's by no means the only situation. So I really felt that caregivers were key to assuring that patients were more likely to get the kind of medical care that they wanted. Right, right. Well, I think your book speaks to, you know, I mean, first of all, I'm a little bit tongue in cheek bringing up, you know, were they not getting geriatrics care? But I think that is, you know, as we know, as geriatricians, part of what we bring to it is not just knowledge of how specific conditions, you know, are might need to be treated differently as people get older. But this idea of, you know, kind of integrating it into the bigger picture of the person's health and their care and, you know, kind of choosing in that route. But then also you bring up something really important, which is especially as people are suffering from more illnesses and disabilities, someone else is often very involved in their health care. And that might be a spouse, that might be an adult child, it might be a concerned, you know, friend or a more distant relative. And that the more that both the patient and that person can have some guidance on navigating this, you know, the the more easy it's going to be to get that older person more of what's likely to help them and less of what's likely to not help them. Because as you were pointing out, people may be getting care that's not a great fit for their situation or their preferences in part because they didn't have enough information to choose differently or because they were too unwell, right? Right. Well, and I think there are also situations where patients don't want to burden their family members with care. But if both parties understood that there were things that the caregiver could do that would make medical treatment a lot more bearable and life much better, that both parties would be interested in doing that. But if there's no open conversation about the options, and if physicians don't include caregivers in discussion, obviously with the permission of the affected individual, the patient, then none of this ever happens. But if, if caregivers are going to be involved in the day-to-day management of what's often multiple chronic diseases, then they need to have tools they need to have skills, they need to have knowledge, uh, and they need to have a partner in the healthcare system. So the book was uh, an attempt to give people a resource that they could turn to over the course of their caregiving journey. Right, right. Well, I love that you wrote this book because I think so many people uh, are you know, looking for guidance on how to navigate this time of life when they are helping a parent or somebody else in their life. So maybe now we can talk about some of those, you know, big ideas that you share in your book. And one of the ones that I was hoping we could start with is that early on in the book, and you have a lot in your book, I mean, it really is an encyclopedia in many ways, and I know it's going to be really valuable to people. But early on, you kind of outline a, you know, an overall, some, some big picture ideas. And in particular, you recommend that family caregivers start by making sure they understand the overall health state of their relative. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that idea and why you feel it's so important for family caregivers 
to understand this. Yeah, this is what you were referring to in passing before as the big picture. Uh, knowing not just how well your diabetes is under control and how well your blood pressure is under control and what medicines you should take for your osteoarthritis and whether your heart failure is any different from the way it was last time. Knowing all these little details is important, but it doesn't give you any clue as to how well you're doing overall. And why that matters is not just because it influences your life expectancy, although that is a piece of it, but also it influences how well you will fare in an environment like a hospital or if you have an acute illness on top of everything else. So to be concrete, um, I've had lots of families at meetings, for example, talk about, well, I don't understand why mom is doing so poorly. She doesn't have metastatic cancer. She doesn't have advanced heart failure. She doesn't have anything so terrible. So why does she keep declining? Why does she keep getting sick? Why does she keep ending up in the hospital? And the answer is not uncommonly that while she doesn't have one really severe condition, she has multiple other conditions that all interact. And in that setting, she's rather precariously balanced between functioning well and doing very poorly. So it typically doesn't take much. It might be enough to get the flu or to have a urinary tract infection or to get, be very sad about something. Any of those things might tip her over from being able to function reasonably independently to perhaps even needing to be in the hospital. It's that kind of big picture that people need to understand, I think, in order to be able to make decisions about, well, on the one hand, should mom be in a nursing home? Should she be in assisted living? Should she be living with her daughter? So it affects where someone lives. It affects how much help the person needs. She might be okay, but if she's that tenuously balanced between ill health and reasonable health, maybe she needs to have more ongoing supervision by a nurse or a home health aide. So those are the kinds of reasons that I think knowing the big picture matters. Um, I guess I'll throw in one other thing which has to do with future states, and that is particularly something that arises with dementia. This is very hard to think about, and I understand that. But there may be interventions that you might contemplate, such as cardiac surgery for someone who not only has a reasonable life expectancy, but who is likely to remain in pretty good shape apart from this one condition, the heart condition, for quite some time. But if that individual has a progressive, inevitably fatal disease, something that causes decline year by year, then intervening in order to make sure that that person is alive and doing well from a cardiac standpoint in five years might 
or might not make sense for that individual. Right. So it sounds like you're getting at, you know, that part of understanding their overall health state is kind of what's the big picture of how they're doing now, but also what's, you know, what are we anticipating kind of as a trajectory, right? Exactly. Over the next few years. And that even though we, you know, we can't see into the future, we don't have a crystal ball, that often it's possible for us as health providers to make an educated guess either because we understand a particular diagnosis the person has, like a diagnosis of a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, which generally means people slowly but steadily keep declining over years, or I guess because we've sort of noticed that the person has already become, you know, we've already seen some decline over the last year or two, and we're expecting that it, you know, very well might continue. Does that sound about right? Right. And I guess the other thing that I would throw in in terms of why I think this is important is partly that it influences decision-making, but also because when, when physicians talk about, well, what approach to care should we take? They often, for a given illness, they often assume that this is all a matter of individual preference. Some people want everything under the sun, other people want a focus on comfort, and still other people want something somewhere in between. And it's certainly the case that preference plays a role, but I think it's preference in the setting of understanding your situation in life. It's not just a philosophy that you have that you were born with or that you've developed over the last 50 years. That's part of it, absolutely. But preferences can also be modified, shaped, altered, depending on your particular situation. Mm -hmm. And your understanding, I guess, of uh, your situation, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so in your, so true, so true. This is such, these are such important points to bring up and for for people to understand. And so in your, in this part of your book, you actually mentioned that you think, you know, most older adults can be roughly classified into one of four states. Can you tell us more about those states? So what the, the easiest to grasp are the two extremes. There are people who I call robust. They are vigorous in the sense that they can do all the things that they want to do in their daily lives. They may have a long list of, of diagnoses. They may have high blood pressure and osteoarthritis and cataracts, and the list can go on and on, and they may be on a number of medicines. So it's not just that they're free of disease. That helps, but it's not essential. It's that those diseases are not sufficiently advanced or sufficiently severe that they really interfere with the person going about his daily business. So those are individuals who are robust. So that's one extreme. And the other extreme is people who are dying, by which I mean people who have an illness that is in all likelihood going to take them away from this planet in the not too distant future measured in months. So they are people who don't just have a bad diagnosis, but who typically have gotten to the point in their illness that their every 
everyday lives are significantly affected by this disorder. And they're likely to die, you said, within the next few months. So really somebody who might be eligible for hospice. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So roughly speaking, those are the two extremes. And in between, you have physical frailty and what one might call cognitive frailty, which is dementia. And of course, there are people who have both of those conditions. So a physically frail person is somebody who either has one disease that affects many different organ systems. A lot of the neurologic conditions are like this. Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis might be a kind of disease that a person might have that could make them frail. Or they have, they're like the person I was describing before, who doesn't have any single disease that's very severe, but has multiple different conditions, which all come together to cause that individual to need help in day-to-day activities. So that would be physical frailty? And dementia is just, the, that's physical frailty, and, and dementia or cognitive frailty is where the, there's impairment in the ability to think, to remember, to plan a variety of different cognitive functions that, again, has gotten severe enough to interfere with everyday life. Right. So your four states, again, were you know, robust, frail, uh, having dementia, and then dying. So I would love for us to talk a little bit more about frailty. How do we know when an older person is frail? How, how do they know? How does their family know? Well, um, I like to, to say that frailty is not like pornography, which has famously been said to be something that, well, I know it when I see it. Lots of doctors don't recognize frailty. There are very simple tests, very simple screening questions that one can ask that help figure out, help a a family member, if you wish, the patient himself or herself, and the physician decide whether someone really should be thought of as frail. And those, those questions have to do with things like exercise tolerance, how tired you get, Uh, how many diseases you have, chronic diseases, which are liable to interfere with everyday function. So there's some simple screening tests that one can do to try to figure out who's frail. I think geriatricians, uh, unlike physicians as a whole, do have a pretty good nose for mm-hmm. detecting frailty. So we know it when we see it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but I, you know, it's not necessarily something that everybody is, is recognizes. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when you were giving that example um, a little while ago of, you know, the family member saying, I don't understand why mom isn't doing well, she doesn't have, you know, this serious disease or that serious disease or that serious. I mean, it sounded like you were describing somebody who was frail, actually, right. but right. that this had not been really kind of brought up and clarified to the family. And, That's exactly right. And, and so, so they're, then, they're mystified. Yes. And this is why I guess you make this, uh, bring up this section very early in your book, that, you know, once both the health providers and the family 
can recognize this state of frailty that you know can enable them to maybe focus on different things for the healthcare or just have kind of different expectations is that does that yeah. sound about right and i think you know obviously one of the themes i talk about quite a bit in the book is is the pros and cons of going to the hospital for treatment when one gets acutely ill and frail people in general not always but in general don't do that well in hospitals. That is, they are particularly prone to developing any of a variety of unfortunate side effects, if you will, of the hospitalization itself. And so that's why it's really critical to know that a person is frail so that you can evaluate that, that decision about whether you want to go for treatment in a hospital or treatment at home, assuming that that is an option. So I'll be honest, I, I have felt ambivalent about the recent focus on frailty. I mean, there's been a lot of interest in it as a concept in academic geriatrics, right? And then there's been a question for, you know, sort of healthcare delivery. Do we sort of systematically make, you know, more of an effort to identify older adults as frail and then kind of set them on a different care track. And I guess one of my hesitations is that I have, but I have not researched this or studied this, but my, my preliminary guess is that I feel like a lot of older adults wouldn't like it if I told them you're, you know, I think you're frail, right? And so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on, on how people feel about hearing that and how we can sort of bring up this, because I think you're right, it's getting at a state of, you know, that I often think of as vulnerability, right? Where people have very little, I also find myself thinking of, you know, just the term reserve, right? They have very little kind of physical reserve to tolerate illnesses or stressors on their body. And actually many of them don't have a lot of reserve to tolerate being put off balance, right? That's why they fall. And so it's very easy for them to, you know, develop the hospital complications or to get much sicker and take longer to recover from illnesses such as the, you know, influenza that, you know, people who are uh, more robust, you know, and often younger can recover from. So how often have you kind of describe to patients and families that they are frail? And do you have any suggestions on how to bring this up in a way that feels, you know, that doesn't feel off-putting to the older person? Mm -hmm. Well, I actually, I wrote a book a number of years ago about frailty. It's called Lifelines. And I remember giving a talk to a general audience. Uh, so this was I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, somebody stood up and said, you know, I don't like that word frail. <laughs> and I was, I was sort of taken aback. And that was the first time that I began to think about how it sounds. So I guess I would say a couple of things. First, I would say that there are lots of words that people don't like. People don't like the phrase palliative care. Mm -hmm. uh, Very when, true. When I did palliative care, consultation at one hospital, the cardiology division finally accepted the idea of palliative care, calling palliative care specialists, but they insisted that they would call refer to it as supportive care. Now, whether they were the ones who didn't like it or the patients is another question, but in any event, the word did engender anxiety. Uh, people don't like the word dementia. 
in the book that I just wrote in the Caregivers Encyclopedia, one of the editors wanted to edit out every time I used demented as an adjective, described a person as demented. They thought having dementia was bad enough, but I should never say demented. Uh, there are people who don't like the word dying. They don't want to hear that they're dying. So I guess on the one hand, I would say that I'm a tell it like it is sort of person <laughs> and I don't like euphemisms and I tend to tell people what I think is going on and I try to do it in a compassionate and unthreatening way. So uh, I guess it's also related to truth telling, even telling someone that they have a diagnosis of dementia. Uh, as you're well aware, there are lots of people who still think that the patient oh, yeah. not be told. Uh, and I say, well, you know, I'm not going to say, well, you know, you have, you have dementia. Uh, I'll say it in a very matter of fact way and talk about what we're going to do to help them. So language is perilous and there are lots of people who don't like lots of words. Uh, so frailty may be just another one of those. That said, the truth is I probably don't or haven't told very many people that they're frail. I don't find a need for it. I do. I use the kind of language that you mentioned, uh, vulnerable, reserve. And I say, well, you know, you don't have all your different conditions are in pretty good control, assuming that that's the case. But you have a lot of different things going on and list the, the different problems that they have. And sometimes that means that you don't have a lot of reserve. So if you get hit with something else, it can really kind of push you off the cliff. And so that tends to be the way that I describe frailty uh, rather than finding it particularly useful to give it a name. I think that the reason personally that I think that we should be checking for frailty is that we can't do research on whether various interventions are particularly helpful to frail people if we don't ever record in our medical records the components that allow someone to determine that, in fact, that individual is frail. Yeah, no, but I think you raise a good point that just because people are uncomfortable with certain terms doesn't mean automatically mean that we should avoid using them. There may be an opportunity instead to educate people and and meet them where where they are and also you know in terms of frailty it sounds like it's important to understand as a a concept the concept that the person is in a and is has reached a point where they're physically as we were saying uh quite vulnerable and so that means we have to be careful about hospitalizations or other you know, uh, at a later point in the book, you talk about um, medications, but you also talk about specialists and procedures and that there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote, standard medical care <laughs> for adults that becomes riskier for certain older adults when they have reached this stage of greater physical vulnerability. And so for an older person and their family member and especially their primary care physician, if they have one, to be mindful of that you know, can change the calculus on whether to pursue certain kinds of uh, forms of, of medical treatment. 
And then I think we should also just add that that our colleagues in academia have come up with specific, you know, little uh, scales, as you were mentioning, questionnaires uh, related to frailty. And uh, I looked up a few of them in preparation for this, but you know, there'll be things like, has the person, you know, lost weight in the last year? Do they get easily exhausted when they walk a block or two? You know, are they walking slowly? Are they, you know, now having trouble climbing stairs and generally not moving? And so there are a few like sort of specific things that can be identified. And then lastly, frailty, they are studying interventions. And it is, even though we can't usually restore people to a very robust state of health again, we can often make things better, right? Can you speak a little bit about that? Right. I mean, sometimes it's you can make things better if a person looks frail, but really it's just that they're recovering very slowly from, let's say, a serious illness or an operation. And during that period of their recovery, they might transiently meet criteria using one of these nice little systems uh, for frailty. So there's some people who look frail, but they're not really, just like there's some people who are confused and seem to be demented, but really it's just what we call delirium, just an acute confusional state that's going to get better. And sometimes it you can mistake one for the other. The other thing is that there may be people who don't get better, but you can prevent them from getting worse. Uh, and that's a good thing too. So if you understand, I think people do understand a lot about different conditions interacting or the idea that medications might interact with each other. I think giving specific examples can be very useful. Uh, You know, the, the Parkinson's specialist who says you should be on this medicine and the cardiac specialist who says you should be on that medicine, but the medicine that the cardiologist wants you to be on makes you fall or makes your blood pressure lower. And in combination with the other things that you're taking, that turns out to be a very bad idea. So I think people understand that sometimes there are different diseases or the different treatments of diseases might interact and what might make sense would have made sense if they only had the one problem doesn't really make sense when they have multiple problems. Right, right. Well, you know, one issue I see come up a lot for family members is I see a lot of family members really wanting their older, you know, parent or relative who often is probably, you know, in a state of frailty to exercise more. So, you know, people often know that exercise is good for you. And it's true that, you know, we do tell older people you need to use it or lose it. And I feel like that's, you know, one of those cases where you you can try it and it does help some and and in other ones you just seem to be exhausting somebody who's already exhausted and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that because I think it gets at people's desire to know like could this be reversed or fixed right when they see their older relative in this declining frail state I find that a lot of people like really want something done about it and how do we help them know when something can be done versus we're going to accept it and try to keep it from getting worse? Well, it's, it's difficult, and I think people do want something done. So not necessarily, they just want something done because they feel, they feel powerless and helpless if they're not doing something. That's why a lot of people with dementia 
are treated with medications that quite frankly are not terribly effective, if at all, uh, because family members and patients themselves are desperate to do something. We live in a culture you, that we're doing things is, is uh, very important. <laughs> so I guess an exercise certainly can help maintain muscle mass uh, or improve muscle mass, improve strength, improve balance, probably can improve people's spirits. Uh, so it's a good thing if a person is able and willing to put up with it. And if, as you say, it doesn't exhaust them and more than compensate for whatever advantages it confers. You know, it's a little bit like uh, aerobic exercise in a younger person where you can say that doing a certain, spending a certain number of minutes a day for many, many years might uh, increase your life expectancy by, I don't know, a week, a month. <laughs> and then you add up all the hours that you spend doing that and you have to decide, was it really worth it? Right, right. Anyway, that's a bit tongue in cheek, but I think... Well, you're speaking to the fact that there's often a short-term cost in doing these things that you know, might provide a benefit, right? So I think that the, the goal should be to, to tell caregivers that it is a good idea and it can be of some use, but it has to be something that the person really wants to do and isn't too burdensome for them because they, you know, it's a risk-benefit analysis. The, the benefits, while they may be real, may also be quite small. And so it has to be something that the individual can do without uh, feeling that it's taking away all quality of life that they had. They're spending all their time going to that gym. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which may or may not be what they, how they want to spend this last phase of their life. So that gets a little bit at the, you know, something else you bring up often in your book that I really appreciate about your book, which is the importance of having a sense of what's most important to the older person and what the goals of the medical care should be. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's been a lot of, of discussion and interest in goals of care. And I guess from the perspective of a physician, there are really only a few goals that make a difference in terms of medical treatment. You may have a lot of goals uh, to see your, your great-grandchild, to go to Aruba, to go to this one concert, uh, whatever your goals might be. But I'm interested in goals that, that have direct implications for medical treatment. And roughly speaking... People either want to live as long as they possibly can, or they want to be comfortable, not have physical pain or emotional suffering, or they want to remain as functional and independent as they can. Okay, now hold on. Of course. You just, you just said or, and we know that if you ask people, they'll say they want all three, right? <laughs> exactly. That was what I was going to, just yeah. about to say. Okay. And of course, everybody or almost everybody wants all those things, and of why course. shouldn't you? Uh -huh. And the, the key is that sometimes you can have it all, but often we have to make trade-offs. And those 
treatments that may prolong your life may come at a cost. They may impair your ability to live independently if you were, particularly if you were teetering at the edge already before you went for your big surgery. Uh, now you need to live in assisted living or a nursing home. Is that a trade-off you're willing to make? Uh, similarly with even simple kinds of, of relatively simple treatments that might promote your function, at least transiently pain and suffering, and you have to decide, is it worth it? So it's, it's the, the need to make trade-offs, particularly given that we're not certain whether any of the bad things, nor I should say the good things, are going to result from the treatment that's being proposed. Right. I guess a very classic one would be chemotherapy for, for cancer, right? That's short right. Term, it tends to make people feel lousy and unwell, and especially if you're older and frail, and it makes you so sick that you can't walk around a lot, you might really lose mobility that you might find hard to get back, right? But it's, you know, in the service of getting this, this chance at living longer. Right. But I think people often also have to understand that a treatment which has the potential of enabling you to live longer, as with chemotherapy, that is typically, in, particularly in a frail person, that is a probability, and it may be a small one. So when you're talking about, well, if I want, I want to do everything to live as long as possible, and I'll be willing to take risks of having losing my independence or losing my hearing or having my vision impaired or having my memory get much worse, I'll take all those risks. You really need to have a sense of how likely the treatment is to help. If it's a 90% chance of helping you and maybe a 10% chance that something bad's going to happen, well, there's be some people who say, no, I don't want that. But uh, a lot of people who go for it. But with frail older people, often this great intervention that is going to confer longer life only has a 20% chance of working. And if it's if you're presenting someone that sort of scenario and you're saying, well, you know, it's not really likely to work, but it might, I, I you know, I, I want you to be sure to understand it. It could make a difference, but it's not terribly likely to make a difference. And it is almost certain, not guaranteed, but almost certain to cause you a lot of discomfort and sacrifice, the need for sacrifices, you may see it in a different light. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So true. So can you offer for the audience some suggestions? So how do you, what are your suggestions on how family caregivers can go about having these conversations with their older relative to figure out what trade-offs that person would be willing to make, assuming we've reached the time, which, which often is true, I would say it's the norm for people who've reached that stage in their life where they have somebody regularly involved in their care. How can people go about figuring out what are the trade-offs and 
which of those three goals you mentioned. So living as long as possible, being as comfortable as possible, or being, I guess, as independent and functional as possible. Um, how can they figure out, you know, which of the three their older relative wants to prioritize? Well, as a physician, I ask people about that. And I start by asking something that caregivers may think they know the answer to, but they might not. Uh, I ask, you know, tell me what, what you get the most pleasure from in life. I mean, I, I am in a position to say, you know, I don't know you that well, even if it's someone I've known for a while, but I don't know them as a spouse or a sibling uh, or a close friend. Tell me, tell me what, what gives you pleasure in life. Uh, what, what matters? I, I try not even to say what matters, but just what, what people, what you enjoy. And often people will tell me that they like being with their family and, or they like going to concerts or they like going for walks, whatever it is. And I will listen to them. And then I will say, so it sounds like you, the person just tells me that they really like going for walks, that going out in nature, being outside, walking around is one of the things that gives them true joy in life. And I'll say, then it sounds like your mobility, your ability to walk around makes a big difference to you, matters a lot to you. And they have the opportunity to agree or disagree. Uh, they might say, well, I like to be outside, but, you know, uh, someone carries me on a stretcher or in a wheelchair or in a limousine or in a car or whatever it is on a horse and buggy, that would be fine too. Then I, then I understand that maybe it's not the walking that matters so much as the being outside. Um, if they talk to me about how they like being with family and interacting with them, I might say something like, so, you know, sounds like your hearing is pretty important to you. You can't really enjoy conversations with your family if you don't hear well. So I try to translate what they've told me about what matters to them, what gives them joy in life, into implications that are medical. And most people, I have to say, though not everybody, gives a picture of that, that says that what really matters is their daily functioning, their minds, their vision, their hearing, their walking. Those are the things that matter to them. And then I will ask them, and I'm sure this is hard for caregivers, but caregivers could ask in the context of, you know, I'm your healthcare proxy and I may have to make hard decisions for you. And you can help me by telling me what matters to you. I, as a physician, would ask, well, you've told me the kinds of things that seem to be really important to you. And I've taken note of those. But I'm going to ask you a tough question. Suppose there was a medical treatment that had a good chance of getting in the way of one of those things that you just told me was really important. Would you want that treatment anyway if it had a reasonable chance of prolonging your life? Well, that's one way to try to get at prioritizing us want it all. Right, right. Well, I, I love that you do that. Um, I have to say, I think, you know, I think of this as a particular skill set of the palliative care specialists, this ability to talk about what matters to someone and break it down into goals of care. And I think the challenge is that often people, 
people's usual physicians are not, don't have the training and experience to guide them through, through that conversation. So I've been very interested in, first of all, as you know, the age-friendly healthcare initiative, you know, one of their four M's is what matters. So um, I'm not quite sure when that's going to turn into a sort of different experience for most older people, <laughs> you know, when they interact with the healthcare system, but I, I like that emphasis on what matters. And then there's also patientprioritiescare.org that, you know, has some little conversation guides for getting at what matters. So those were some things, but any other thoughts for people who, you know, where they are not with, you know, they're not talking to a clinician who's trained in palliative care, how they might be able to get at some of that with a kind of usual PCP? Well, sometimes if you've worked on an advanced directive, at home, the patient, you know, patient with caregiver, and you figured out some of this stuff, you can just present it as a, as a FETA complete to the, to the doctor and say, you know, we've, we really spent a lot of time uh, hashing this out. And um, this is, this is what I, if the patient is speaking directly or my relative wants. So that may be an area for, in some situations where the, the patient and caregiver have to, to take the initiative. But if they're, if the physician is given, given the substantiating documents, yeah, right. I also actually have sometimes suggested to families that they see if they can, you know, get a consultation with palliative care. And again, that's when I think it's, you know, I find it's necessary to emphasize that this isn't the same as asking for hospice, you know, or saying that the person is terminally ill, but that these are, you know, clinicians who can be really good at, you know, helping an older person and a family, you know, sort this out. And it sounds like you were part of a multi-specialty group and people didn't have to be in the hospital to see you. But right now I find that it can be hard for people to find a palliative care consult if they are not hospitalized, but more and more there are palliative care consultations available in the hospital. So I feel like that's a potential resource that people could tap into. Right. And increasingly on an outpatient basis as well. Yeah. Um, in principle, many hospices are supposed to offer a, a one-time palliative care consultation, which is not supposed to be a hospice intake interview. My limited experience has found that often they really are. Uh, what, and that's unfortunate. Because, uh, but, but there are growing, growing opportunities to have this kind of consultation on an outpatient basis. And sometimes the social work member of a geriatrics team might uh, engage in this kind of process as well. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So now I'd like to move on to sort of something else that comes up in your book. Now, let me, you know, say to the audience that one thing that is uh, that I thought was really interesting about your book is, again, that you were very encyclopedic. You kind of broke it down into lots of subjects, you know, that are going to come up, like when you go to the doctor, the role of primary care physicians versus specialists, you know, when you go to the hospital, choosing a hospital, working with the hospitalist you know, what to know about rehab facilities. You also have sort of advice on, you know, the 10 most common chronic conditions for older adults and a variety of other things. So I'm going to refer the readers to the book, 
you know, and say, it's a great resource where you can look up almost any topic. Um, and I want to talk about another bigger picture issue, which is the relationship, you know, the, the family member developing this role as an important player in the relationship between the physician, the health team, and their older relative. Can you talk a little bit more about this role? What do you think are the most important things family caregivers need to know about becoming an effective partner in the healthcare team? Yeah, I think that the key thing is that we're talking about a triangle here, a triangle right. of the, and all parties need to be on board for it to work optimally. Uh, and as I think you're implicitly suggesting, when any one of those parties is not pleased with the situation, there's a problem. Uh, I think the, the best way or to try to make it work is for everybody to realize that it's actually in their own best interest, that doctors should understand that if they have a partner on site who's willing to take some responsibility, that that can make their lives easier. I hate to be sort of so, have such a sort of um, self-serving perspective here, but I think doctors need to see this as a win for them, not just because the patients will get better care, though I believe that is true, and not just because their patients are more likely to get the kind of care that they want, though I think that's also true, but that it's also going to make life in many respects, easier for the physician. And I think the patient needs to see it that way too, that, that it's in their own interest to let the caregiver serve as an intermediary sometimes between them and the physician. Uh, or as a wingman. Yeah. Uh, right? Adjust medications, do various things. Um, and I think that the caregiver has to feel that provided that they have the necessary knowledge and support, that it's actually going to make their job easier. I think there have been a number of studies now that have looked at what it is that family caregivers do, and that when they are providing care for patients with complex medical problems, which is typically frail people or dying people, uh, people who have a lot of things going on, when caregivers provide care for that sort of complex patient, they are doing a whole host of things that it used to be that only an RN or an MD could do. Oh, you know, yeah. To do it as part of a job, you would need to like have a credential and a license. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so family caregivers report that they're doing this stuff from you know, giving intravenous medication to providing artificial nutrition and hydration, you know, granted they don't put the feeding tube in, but they give the stuff through the feeding tube. They have to troubleshoot when it gets clogged. Um, they're providing dialysis at home or they're dealing with the, the needs of some fancy equipment, you know, taking care of that equipment. Uh, and that they often feel frightened, anxious. What am I, if I, am I going to harm my relative? 
because they're not given enough training, they're not given enough support, sometimes literally just hand-holding, it's okay, you're doing, you're doing a fine job. So I think if you have a functioning team that involves a physician and often a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, some other individual within the physician's office, and the caregiver and the patient that and the caregiver understands that he or she it's usually a she but it doesn't have to be uh, is going to get the necessary training and support to make this work that makes life easier not harder right well so it sounds like to come you know back to the question of what do people need to know about this role it sounds like you know we might say that that in many ways it is optimal for there to be this three-way triangle, you know, an effective partnership between the physician or whoever is kind of the primary health provider, the older person, and a family caregiver, right? Uh, so that there are a lot of ad advantages to it and that physicians like on their own have variable levels of receptiveness to this, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, letting them know you'd like to be involved and asking for their help on, you know, getting the information you need would be part of it. And I find that a lot of family caregivers initially don't realize or think that they should be that involved in the healthcare. I think they are concerned that they're going to be stepping on either their older relative's toes, especially if that person hasn't particularly encouraged it or that they're, you know, or they've gotten messages from the healthcare team that it's not entirely desirable. Yeah, so. I think you're right. I think that I think that it often doesn't occur to any of the parties involved that this could be something that a caregiver does. Um, I think it's sort of ironic that it's okay for the caregiver to give intravenous medication, and we don't think twice about that, but monitoring someone's weight and calling the office to say, you know, she's gained two pounds and she's looking a little puffy and do you think I need to increase the diuretic might be every bit as valuable and maybe a lot more valuable in some cases than just making decisions at the, in the time of crisis in the ICU. And that part of what equips a family caregiver to be doing that work of monitoring the weight and helping an older person, you know, in that case, kind of monitor chronic heart failure is if they go to the appointments, you know, or are That's right. kind of part of that interaction, right? Where that conversation happens about what's happening with the illness and, you know, uh, what would be helpful to do to keep it on track and help the older person, you know, meet their goals of care, which for heart failure is often to, to feel comfortable, to not feel short of breath and to be able to walk around and live your life. Yeah. So I, I think that doctors often fail to realize how valuable to them and to the patient, the caregiver can be. Though there's some yeah, such simple examples when you talk about being present at the appointment. Now, there are at least a subset of uh, older adults who don't like, who want to put their best face forward when they go see the doctor. So oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Dress up nicely mm -hmm. and they'll change their underwear. And, you know, right. They'll uh, deny that anything is a problem. Right. And if there's somebody else there who is 
has been given the authorization by the patient to present that person's perspective, then the physician might find out about all kinds of things before they get out of hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, which can be really useful. Well, I think, you know, another recurring theme that I noticed throughout your book was really that of kind of speaking up and, and advocating, right? That if, you know, the partnership, the, the duo of the older person and their family caregiver, you know, that if they're able and willing to speak up and ask for things or ask extra questions, that often results in that older person getting, you know, more of what they need and potentially less of what they don't need or are unlikely to benefit from. And because I think this is another hard lesson that people often learn is that left to itself, they will often not necessarily get everything they need, or they'll get a lot of things that aren't necessary. And so you have to, you know, the more you can sort of go in as an informed patient, you know, and care circle, the, uh, the better. And that when older adults are, are feeling unwell, then it becomes extra important for them to have somebody else who can help support that advocacy. So one thing, one of the many things I loved about your book is I felt like you were giving um, families, but I think older adults can also learn a lot from this for their own health, lots of specific information, you know, and tools that they can use to navigate the specific conditions or symptoms or, you know, healthcare scenarios that, that you then have in this, in your encyclopedia. <laughs> well, Muriel, again, I want to thank you for writing this book because I think it's just a great addition to the books you've already written and to what we have available to help empower older adults and families to kind of wrap things up. You know, what would you say are, you know, the key takeaways that you want to share or key points that you want to share with the, our listeners? We, we've touched on most of them, you know, the importance of having the big picture, the underlying health state, knowing what that is, both for, for patients, actually, we should have them talked about it, but for doctors too, <laughs> to recognize it, and, and for caregivers. Uh, the critical role that caregivers can play, and that if they have the knowledge, skills, and the right partners, they can find it rewarding and, in fact, ease some of their burden to play that role. I guess the only other thing that that um, I would throw in that we've sort of alluded to in passing, but when I talk about strategies for dealing with management of the 10 most common chronic conditions and then strategies for responding to acute symptoms, some of the more common acute symptoms, I try very hard not to be prescriptive and say you have to do this. Caregivers, I think, are bombarded with, you must do that, you must do this. <laughs> it's really important to have, have this list on your refrigerator. It's really important to whatever, fill out some form. What I want to do instead is to help walk people through an approach and to help them realize that the approach may differ depending on what the goals of care are. So it's all connected together. The goals are not just something, little exercise that you play off in the beginning, but that actually matters in terms of dealing with an acute symptom. You know, 
abdominal pain? Do you rush to the emergency room? Do you go to the doctor's office? Do you try various empiric therapies? Do you talk to the doctor and then try various empiric therapies? They're different approaches and that they will vary depending on both the medical realities, the physical symptoms, the severity of the symptoms, what the specific symptoms are, but they'll also vary depending on the overall approach that that person wants to take. Right. So, yeah, so it sounds like you're really sort of pointing out how the goals create this foundation that helps you then pick your way through the specific, you know, scenario or issue that you'll be troubleshooting with your older relative. And I think that's such a valuable tool to give people. So I'm really glad that your book emphasizes that. And then that you give these really practical examples, you know, of how you would use, you know, having thought about those goals in then troubleshooting, you know, the, the belly pain or the other kind of urgent situation, which so many caregivers end up having to navigate, you know, as they help an older person. So Muriel, we will definitely have a link, of course, to the book and some of the other resources that we talked about in the show notes. And are you going to be going on a book tour? I just feel like this would make a great series of lectures for you to be giving in person. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> well, if, uh, if we find out you are, we'll post that on the show notes too, so people can come and learn more from you. And of course, I will also post a link to your wonderful blog. I hope you plan to continue blogging because I think that's another great resource that I wish more people knew about and that I have certainly appreciated these past several years. Well, thanks, Leslie, for this, this opportunity and for all the great work that you do with both patients and their caregivers. And uh, keep on keep going. going one step at a time. It's, right? all part of, it's all part of the same plan, I think, you know, the work right. that, that we are both doing and that our colleagues in geriatrics are doing. Thank you, Muriel. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.